Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about First Baptist Church of Silva, please visit firstbaptistsilva.com. So the children's minister called for the kids to come down for a children's message. And as she did and got set up, hordes of children gathered around her. It was a good Sunday. And as the children's minister began, everyone nodded. They knew the story. It was the story of the loaves and fish. And everyone also knew that this was going to be an object lesson. The children's minister had brought things, and she was already beginning to show the goldfish crackers. Behind her was a basket that all but one had not noticed. One of the children, during the children's message, was visibly upset. And the congregation began to chuckle at how obvious it was this child could not contain his very strong emotions for some reason. He was staring at the children's minister or somewhere nearby. He was angry and not pleased. It was so arresting that he drew the attention of the children's minister, who did a double take and said, is everything okay? And the little boy stood up and said, Joey ate all the fishies and now the story is ruined. (laughs) Ah, yes. The fear that there will not be enough for everyone is real. And not many of us can disguise or masquerade our true feelings about it. Here's some fun facts about this very familiar story. The story of the multiplication of the fish and the loaves shows up in the gospel six times. Of course, we know that there are four gospels. Aside from the resurrection, this is the only miracle story that appears in all four gospels. Y'all, the miracle of Christ's birth that we've all built an entire economy around only shows up in two of the four Gospels. This story appears six times in four Gospels. It's the only one that does so. In John's retelling of this very popular and famous story, we meet a boy who shares the contents of his lunchbox, or the disciples just steal it outright. Read the story. It may be true. The other thing about this story that's interesting is that I think we can all agree that there were far more than 5,000 people in the crowd. What is it that Matthew said? And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Thanks for that, Matthew. There were likely twice as many there probably more. We're talking about a big crowd of people. And finally, and this oftentimes gets overlooked, Jesus provides enough for everyone to be filled and is economical about it. It's a fun detail that we may miss. It says, and all ate and were filled. And they took up what was left over of the broken pieces 12 baskets full. Most of us hear that and go, wow, 
Oh, Jesus provided a lot more than that was needed. Y'all, we're talking 10,000 people and 12 baskets left over. Yes, there's a nice symbol, but y'all, that would be like us going back up to Vespers at Water Rock now where we had that dessert buffet bonanza. And after everyone had had their fill and had, had all kinds of sugar overload, they're done. There was but one spoonful of that chocolate cobbler left over. And I'm claiming it. Jesus provides just enough. It's perfect. So what is it then about this story that not only gets our attention, but also clearly made an impression on the gospel writers and Jesus' followers? For one, I think it's fascinating to see how disaster is averted. We love disaster stories. I mean, just look at the movies in Netflix and on HBO Max and Prime Video and YouTube Video. We love a good disaster. And we love to see how through the disaster, people are saved. We love this story. But also, the story contains a, a miraculous moment of multiplication. Something very small that would feed probably just a child, could feed them all. But I think, I think that at its core, this story is about problem solving. And in that regard, it very much grabs my attention. Because y'all, we got a lot of problems. The disciples and Jesus in the story both know what the problem is. They just have different ways of trying to solve it. The masses don't have anything to eat. They're there because Jesus was moved by compassion by the plight of the people. This pops up frequently. Jesus has eyes to see, and when he, what he sees moves him. In fact, in other places in the Gospels, it literally talks about how his guts, Jesus' insides, literally turn over by what he sees. The disciples in the beginning of the story, they see trouble brewing. They tell Jesus, hey, Jesus, we're in the sticks. And it's getting late. So send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy food for themselves. The disciples get a hard, we give them a hard time. And they get a, a, a difficult rap in a number of different places in the Gospels. But we shouldn't give them a hard time here. Why? Their response is actually pretty responsible and reasonable and appropriate. Hey, we've been out here a long time. There are a lot of these people. They are hungry. And y'all, many of you all have been to enough Baptist potlucks to know that you do not mess with people when they're hungry. You do not invite a grandstanding preacher to talk and talk and talk before the blessing. We know this. But the disciples' thinking here is clearly from a position of scarcity. They, they recognize that they don't have anything to feed the people. Again, think about the Ramsey Center at Western Carolina University. Imagine it full. Now put people on the court and in the concourses and standing in the aisles. 
have them be in there for a long time. And they're hungry. The disciples recognize this. They're, they're trying to coach Jesus to send them away. They don't have any power because they're there with Jesus. I'm not so sure Jesus, with the way in which he spoke and preached and, and conveyed such power in his presence, could have done so himself. But they know, Jesus, if this guy happened, they're going to have to do it. The disciples, however, can only identify one option. Namely, that someone else take care of them. They need to take personal responsibility. How many times have we heard that? They need to take personal responsibility, go into town, and buy food for themselves. It'll be a bonanza for the local economies, right? But Jesus, on the other hand, doesn't see their lack of resources as a crisis. And it changes everything. But not before we see a picture of a very human Jesus. And this is a part of the story that I believe gets missed. The story begins with this verse. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. Wise readers of scripture will scratch their heads and go, well, why would Jesus go to a deserted place? What exactly is this? What did he just hear? Good scholars of the Bible will back up. They'll rewind and see what just happened right before this. Matthew, who's captured Jesus' life and ministry here, knows that this refers to a tragic and traumatic death. John the Baptist, Jesus' peer, colleague, friend, cousin, has just been brutally murdered by the religious authority, Herod. There's politics involved, but it's bad. John loses his head, literally. And the disciples have recovered his body, and they go to tell Jesus. You know, Jesus is grieving. He wants to go off by himself in a boat, no less. Because he's, he's got to recover. He's got to got to be thinking about this. You, you can imagine that he's grieving the loss of what's happened, but you've got to know that this is giving him a glimpse of what's about to happen to him. Y'all, Jesus is not okay. And as such, we know, don't we, from our own experience with grief, how grief brings exhaustion of spirit, mind, and body. But even so, even with Jesus trying to get out of town, he sees the crowd, and he's moved by what he sees. I mean, y'all, there could have been some real wisdom in him literally going to an undisclosed location. His own safety is at risk. But now he's, he's allowing himself to be moved to the point of action. Even though he is absolutely spent, there's not much left in him at all, he still believes that will probably be more than enough for the crowd. And so he spends time with it, preaching, teaching, healing those who are hurting. So when 
the disciples tell Jesus that they need to send, he needs to send them away. I love Jesus' line there. And I'd like to invite you to take off your Sunday school hat and read it the way I think it could very well have gone. Instead of hearing this as Jesus saying to them, you give them something to eat. Consider him saying it as, you feed them. You give them something to eat. You figure it out. We know what grief does to us. We know how it affects our temperament and our behavior. You know, Jesus is done teaching it's time for the disciples to do something. But also, in all fairness, Jesus knows something that his disciples don't. The crowd doesn't have to go away. With Jesus, even the smallest of offerings will be enough. And we know what happens next, but that's not nearly as important as what we learn from the disciples in Jesus' attempt to problem solve here. The disciples don't think that they can feed the people. They believe rightly that they cannot do it with what they have. Theirs is a perspective of scarcity, of focusing on what they do not have to work with, and we are very familiar with that way of thinking. We don't have enough power, authority. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough votes. We don't we don't have enough personnel. We don't have enough property. We don't have enough resources. That's what stops us. That's what stops us every time. Yeah, we live in a community in southern Appalachia where we are much more familiar with the realities of scarcity. There is a part of us, even in our DNA, that is focused on what we don't have. And with that, of course, comes this sense of resignation that we give up. We're familiar with that poverty of thinking. We recognize it in ourselves. We recognize it in others. We recognize it in our places of work here in our community and in our neighborhoods that we live in. It's part of us. We say things like, well, if only we had this. If only we had that. So we've got to make good. We've got to be content with what little we have, but we've got to scale everything back. Y'all, here's a hard truth. Our inclination to think and act out of scarcity stymies the spirit and stops good fruit from growing. It is not good or healthy soil when we are constantly acting out of a place of knowing that the soil doesn't have the kind of nutrients it needs. But with Jesus, God flips this narrative on its head. God doesn't scale things back. God ramps things up. All of those parables that we've been studying reveal what God can do with so little. A mustard seed, yeast, smallest of things 
can have such outsized power with God's backing and God's presence. No, I certainly did not invent this idea of scarcity versus, versus abundance. It's with Stephen Covey in his um, best-selling book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, that, that coined these terms. A scarcity mentality is what keeps many of us from getting things accomplished. An abundance mindset refers to the paradigm that there's, there's plenty out there for everybody. There really is. We can believe Cactus Peak. There is enough water for everyone. But the next question for us is how we can make the shift from scarcity to an abundance mindset. I mean, how do we actually move from focusing on what we don't have to the reality that we have been given enough? First, we've got to become aware of what we've been given and be thankful for it. It's no accident that our service has been about acknowledging blessing. The disciples, they couldn't see it. They couldn't see the masses of people and what an opportunity they had. They didn't recognize that however they got it, what they had wasn't much, but it could be enough. First, y'all, we've got to acknowledge what we've been given and be thankful for it. Second, we've got to see what Jesus sees and be moved to action to do something about it. Y'all, this is all for nothing if we don't see what Jesus sees and be moved to the point of action. I mean, it is so tempting, isn't it, for the disciples to really be concerned about themselves? Jesus, we're tired. We're hungry. Weren't we going to retreat somewhere nice? Blessedly, the disciples don't do that. I'm not so sure I can say the same thing about the modern church, where all we want to see is what's in here. It's not how Jesus operated. Jesus was out and about, and he saw what people were dealing with. And he wanted to do something about it. The other thing we've got to do to shift from this sense of scarcity to abundance is to utilize what we have been given to meet the challenge. Because when we do this, as this story teaches us, Jesus blesses our offering, Jesus blesses our faith, and Jesus multiplies our efforts. Y'all, this is the story of the church. If anybody should excel at having an outlook of abundance rather than scarcity, it should be us. But i got to tell you, that is certainly not how we operate in our age of prosperity where we've been led to believe that our solutions are things that we can go out and buy if we just had enough money. Y'all, during these last few years, as we know through all of the posts on social media and all of the journals and all of the studies that the church in our context is in extraordinary decline. It will not at all surprise you that it takes great energy that I do not have to not look out these last Sundays and months and years now and see only the emptiness in our pews. I see it every Sunday. It haunts my 
every waking breath. If I'm preaching to anyone in this room, it's myself. It's easy to see those who are not there. It's easy to see what we don't have. And it can be so tempting to just dwell there in despair and allow it to erode what we can do, what we've been called to do, what we've been sent here to do. What convicts me about this story is that it teaches me that that I've been uniquely gifted with what we need to respond to the challenges around us. It is, it's personal, but the same is true for you. You, we, have been uniquely gifted with what we need to respond to the challenges around us. And I know I don't have to tell you this part, but I'm going to anyways. We've got hungry people to feed also. The problem is, These people don't know that what they are hungry for is the life-sustaining, life-directing, life-fulfilling love of Jesus Christ. Increasingly, entire swaths of our public, numbers of generations, see faith increasingly as inconsequential and not worth their time, energy, or attention These same folk don't see that their lifestyles, their well-intentioned choices are are actually starving their souls and depriving them of soul-nourishing nutrients. So what do we do about it? The disciples didn't believe that they had what was needed to feed the people. Jesus said for them to take care of it themselves. They had enough. Could it be true for us also? Is that why the story appears so frequently in the Bible? Is that why in the early church we learn about a a pitifully organized group of of folk that were absolutely ill-suited to do what God was calling them to do? And look what happened. When will we see that we have everything that we need to reach the people around us who are starving for something more than they're currently getting? And when will we recognize that when we share what we have, God will work a miracle through it because God always does. Even though what we have may not look like much, With God's blessing, it's more than enough. And that's why in these next few months, we're going to have a conversation together. And you can choose to not show up, but I certainly hope that you do. We're going to have several congregational meetings. And we're going to be participating in a process and a procedure called dawnings. The Cooperative Baptist Fellowship for the last decade knows that Churches need to have these conversations. It's a visioning process. It's a way of listening to one another and of practicing spiritual gifts with the intention of holding two questions. Namely, who would God have us to be? And what would God have us to do? 
Who would God have us be? And what would God have us to do? Y'all, it's time for us to have this conversation. We have it envisioning in about 11 or 12 years. We are a very, very different church than 2012 or 2013, especially with the experience and the trauma that we've experienced these last few years. We need to have this conversation. To hold these questions, we've got to be aware of what's been entrusted to us. That's an important part of the process to consider our assets. And our assets are in these pews and listening and watching the service. And our assets, y'all, are far greater than we might imagine. Y'all, God has given us people with skills and gifts and calling and experience. God has gifted us with a facility, a location, here on Main Street, and a campus here that's uniquely positioned to do good. But more than that, we also have a shared history of faithfulness, how God has worked with us before and how God will continue to work with us in the days to come. Tell me, y'all, what, what problem or challenges do you see not the ones here in our infrastructure, the, the challenges. I'm not saying they're not important, but we've got to broaden our perspective here. It's not just about the disciples and Jesus up on this mountain. They recognized that it was bigger than them. When will we? When we look out and we see the problems and the challenges of people hungry for something that they cannot get conventionally in the ways in which they thought would meet their hunger and thirst. How are we going to respond to these challenges? Do we even care enough about it to address it? Well, here's the good news. The good news that what you see and what you have right now to address it is with Jesus' blessing more than enough. This well has never run dry. There's water for all only. The leather washer gets dried out and the pump needs to be primed. West of this well, you'll find a rock and under the rock, you'll find a bottle of water that has a cork in it. Don't drink this water. Instead, trust me. Take half of the water, pour it down the well, moisten the washer, and then pour the rest down the well. Pump like crazy and you'll have all the water you need again. Do not drink the water that's in the bottle. Pour it all down. Have faith. There's water for all. Let us pray. God, help us to see that there is enough for all. Help us to recognize We've got to be mindful of what you have given us. And then pump like crazy so that all will be fed. All will experience your living water. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.